name is Amy Baugh. I'm, I'm an assistant professor at Hope College in the Department of Psychology and the Neuroscience Program. And our neuroscience program at Hope is really growing. Uh, we sort of transitioned from a neuroscience minor to a neuroscience major that just got established this year, which is really cool. And it's, it's already growing, right? Uh, we already have 20-some majors that have, have established within the first couple months. So it's exciting. I think, I think neuroscience is a pretty rapidly growing field. Um, to the Society for Neuroscience conference just a couple days ago in Chicago, and 30,000 neuroscientists converged at that conference. It's pretty incredible. Uh, and to think that it was established in 1970, right? The field, in a way, isn't that old, but in some ways, it's ancient. It goes all the way back to philosophical times, but we just didn't call it neuroscience then. So neuroscience is really kind of my passion. Um, I got interested in neuroscience in graduate school when I was examining the uh, neural correlates of sleep in infant rats, of all things. And I've been fascinated with sleep ever since. And so one of the things I want to touch on is, is ways in which we can promote learning in students. And one big thing is to try to promote sleep in them, which is, um, it's difficult as instructors to promote sleep. I have a hard time doing it even when I explain to students how important sleep is. Um, but our, our Brain Explorers program is kind of a, it's a newer initiative for us since I came to Hope. Um, and our goal with Brain Explorers is to perform outreach in um, local schools and to really teach students. In our case, we're teaching undergraduate students how to do research in local schools, but you could really apply this, I think, to any any students, right? As long as students are teaching other students and performing outreach, I think that's a really important skill for any student to learn. Um, so the problems as I see it in terms of uh, outreach and why it's necessary is kind of the first thing, which is that there's a decrease in trust and access to science within the general public. And I think it's really important that we get other students in the community excited about science. Um, there's a lot of data out there that supports this claim that people are becoming increasingly skeptical about scientists, unfortunately. And so um, I think we have a need to excite the public about science and to reach those that are underrepresented and underserved populations, which is also really a passion of mine, to not only um, do research uh, and outreach, but to reach those that really need to be reached the most. Um, what kind of outreach actually works? Uh, there's some studies out there that kind of talk about what science research is the best, but we're kind of trying to figure out how do we make outreach more effective? How do we reach those that we really need to reach? How do we engage students in the community to get excited about science, but also how do we teach others how to engage in this process? And, and kind of both of those things are really important to me, not only reaching others in schools and teaching them about, um, about outreach, but also as faculty, we also teach undergraduates how to perform research. And so it's, it's a bi-directional, interaction that I'm really interested 
And like I said, even if you're a teacher of middle school or students, they can create their own project and think about ways in which they can reach others and go out in the community and serve. And I think that's an important thing. Um, active learning is a really important part of this process, right? You've probably heard a lot about active learning before. Uh, but outreach is in and of itself a form of active learning because, you know, you're, you're performing hands-on activities with other students, and that's an important thing. So if we think about active learning a little bit, think about how outreach opportunities provide a form of active learning, um, I think it's kind of important to think about why active learning works and why outreach is so important. So the mission of Brain Explorers uh, as sort of neuroscientists who are interested in outreach is really to provide exciting, engaging, accessible, and accessible science engagement for underserved and upper, underrepresented populations. So this means um, we're doing outreach in local schools. We are trying to excite students about outreach um, by designing activities that we think will be fun for them to really kind of bolster their excitement in science. And we know that active learning is, is a much better way of learning than passive learning. Engaging in creativity, critical thinking skills, thoughtful exercises, these are the ways in which we learn. And these are the things that we should be thinking about when we're designing our own curriculum or outreach activities. Um, so it's important to realize that if we think about active learning, it's all about doing, it's all about engaging. That's how we're going to get to the level of true understanding. And to engage others, to engage students, we need to get them to really perform activities, to do things, right, to discuss amongst each other what, what is it that excites you about science and what do you want to do? What do you want to teach others? And so thinking about that process of outreach as being engaging, planning ahead, um, is really important. And those activity pieces are the ones where you're going to see the most kind of level of understanding. In order to engage well, we need to think about how to develop certain skills. So we need to get students to think about how can they analyze, synthesize, and evaluate their own outreach methods that they're developing? And thinking about, okay, I developed this outreach lesson plan, and then take it out into the field and teach other students about a topic that you're excited about, and then come back and decide whether or not you're effective at that. That's an important skill for everyone to learn, I think. And in doing so, in engaging and developing these skills, I think what we end up with is students that really value exploring and, and kind of identifying um, new ways of doing things, kind of getting outside of the classroom and teaching others things, which can kind of shape their attitudes in really meaningful ways. So we know that with active learning, um, active learning is a really has a lot of positive benefits, and in general, we see throughout many studies, these are meta-analyses that show that active learning results in a significant decrease in failure rates. Um, and the percentage of students that fail the class is significantly reduced when the classroom is an active form of learning versus a lecture form of learning. And so um, it's important that we're thinking about ways in which we can engage students to um, actually do hands-on activities rather than just listening passively, which is not the best way to learn. Um, this is true across the board in terms of um, 
student performance and percentage of decrease in failure rate is markedly, um, failure rate is markedly reduced when active learning happens amongst really any field that you look at, specifically in STEM disciplines, we see some pretty significant results in terms of active learning being a very important process. So I wanted to talk a little bit about why active learning works because this is kind of part of where um, my passion for neuroscience and sleep and um, even development kind of comes together. So from a neuroscientific point of view, learning truly does involve specific changes that can occur in the brain and even in our neurons. And I know this isn't typically the way we think about learning, but, um, but truly the way that learning works is neurons are literally uh, reshaping. The circuitry is changing when we learn something new. Neural networks are strengthened when we learn something new. And I, um, I think it's kind of important to think about this. And I know this looks kind of sort of complicated in a way, but this is the reason what's complicated is because we have about 85 billion neurons in our nervous system, right? And in order for us to learn something new, what we're doing when we learn something is literally strengthening the connections between our neurons. And so when you think about things like experiences that students have, um, maybe it's piano practice or maybe it's um, learning a new activity, literally what's happening there is the neurons start strengthening their connections between one another so that you get these amazing outputs, right? But what's happening is strengthening of neural connections. It's an incredible thing to think about, I think. Um, and, you know, it's also important to think about um, the fact that if we don't get certain experiences in our life, we're not gonna have an opportunity for these neural circuits to really form. And so active learning is a process of, of really engaging in different processes by which you are utilizing many different sensory modalities which can allow for strengthening of these neural circuits. Um, we also know that learning involves neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity means really that our nervous system is capable of change. So we also know that uh, neuroplasticity tends to happen more in early development than it does once we get a little bit older. So, uh, you know, student, our students have a very plastic nervous system, which means that they can be shaped by the experiences that they have in their life. Um, and, and really the main way that this happens is by the strengthening of the neural circuits that occur. So that can happen kind of two ways. New synapses can form, new skills and experience can, can actually create new connections between neurons or strengthened synapses. And really what that's about is practice. And the more that you practice a certain skill, the stronger the connections occur between the neurons. I think it's kind of cool to think also a little bit about forgetting uh, information. And when you forget things, uh, what you end up doing is these, these synapses weaken. And that's what's kind of being shown over here, which is that we can't remember everything, right? And when we don't practice things, when we don't have active learning happening, then the synapses weaken, and that's why we forget certain things. Neurogenesis is an interesting piece of this puzzle too, which suggests that new neurons can also be born throughout our life. But it turns out that it, there's an interesting thing in development that you're actually born with way more neurons than you have in your adult life. We have 
pruning happens, actually. You have some birth of neurons over your life, but it's nowhere near the number of neurons that actually die over the course of your life, which is kind of surprising, which means that the neurons that we have left are the ones that are meaningful, that they're doing something in order for us to survive, but also to demonstrate that we've learned information. Okay. I kind of mentioned this already, but one reason why I think active learning is so uh, productive and meaningful and helpful is because it involves, hopefully, multiple sensory modalities. There's an integration of different systems when you're actively pursuing things so that we can tap into more high levels of cognitive functioning so that those neural networks can strengthen. And this requires new experiences. Um, new experiences in our life allow for those synapses to strengthen, and the more experiences that we have, the stronger those connections can be. So here we're kind of thinking about the fact that we see things, we hear things, we touch things, our form of balance, and putting all these things together, taste, smell, all of those things into anything that we do is gonna strengthen our remembering of that information. Um, we should also mention here that a growth mindset is a really important way in, in order to think about the active learning process. So we want to, as instructors, encourage students to be embracing challenges rather than avoiding them. We want them to learn from criticism rather than run away from it. We want them to think about when they fail, and they will at some point, that this is an opportunity to grow, and it's not a, a moment of shame. Um, we really want, that's a really important thing, right? It's really important that, that we encourage this persistence, this embracing of challenging, this desire to keep learning. Because it's when students decide that, you know, I'm just not good at this, right? Start going over to the other side here, the fixed mindset, and when a student or child decides that they're not good at something anymore, and they're not encouraged to keep trying again, what can happen is they get stuck, and they'll end up avoiding those kinds of experiences in the future, and that's what we want to avoid. So active learning is a way to engage them in things that they may not have done before so that they can realize that they actually are good at some of these things. My daughter is um, not necessarily a fan of math, and I keep encouraging her to you know, really embrace it, that maybe it's hard for you, but that doesn't mean that you're not good at it, right? And, and so she has struggled, but I've, I've seen this year she has a teacher who has this growth mindset point of view. She's getting an A now in math, and she has so much confidence, and it's just flipped, right, to the point where she's no longer over here on the left side. She has moved to the right side, and I think she even enjoys that, believe it or not. So it's kind of a cool thing to think about the fact that if we get lots of new experiences and keep pushing forward, that that can be a way that we promote um, learning. And I put this up here also just to, to think about the fact that in early life, especially, um, children are very, very sensitive to the experiences that they have. And, but as we get into the school years and beyond, we still have a high level of sensitivity to things like social skills and language and conceptualization and critical thinking um, and math. And all of these things are really important to keep developing. 
right? Although some of these skills may sort of already start to be set a bit based upon early life, there are so many things that continue to develop over life. Okay, so what are some factors that can promote learning? So there are some important things to keep in mind when you want a student to really embrace this challenge of learning things. And one, sometimes it's surprising, is that they need a form of moderate stress. Not mild stress or extreme stress, those can be bad. Moderate stress can actually be a good thing. Passion of mine, as I mentioned, is that sleep is really, really important. And the more that um, the <coughs> students can know about how important sleep is, the better. The hard thing is to get them to actually take your advice and, and do it. Nutrition and exercise are also really important factors. And encouraging students to make meaningful connections between what they're learning and their own life is also really critical. So if we start with moderate stress, we'll also move to sleep and talk about meaningful connections a bit before we talk about the specifics of the outreach that I think are really important. In order for students to learn well, they have to be provided with a moderate level of stress. If, if they're not getting any kind of stress, what can happen is they can feel very bored, they don't feel motivated to do anything, they might even be very sleepy. But as we push to the high levels of stress, that can also be very risky. Because if you push them too hard, you can get into a situation where anxiety can be provoked. And so you have to strike that balance of moderate stress levels, which is a bit challenging, right? You need to challenge them and encourage them to, to try their hardest and not get on this low end of things where they feel like they already know this stuff and they, they don't feel very motivated to do that. Okay, here's the sleep piece I've been talking about. Um, if we look at school-aged children, the recommendation from the National, Science, National Sleep Foundation is that 6 to 13-year-old children should be getting 9 to 11 hours of sleep per night. Um, it kind of sounds like a lot, but it's really important that they fall in that range because if they fall below 9, what can happen is that they, they'll feel groggy, they'll feel sleepy, they're not ready to learn, and what will happen is it can set them up for um, feeling like that's how they're supposed to feel every day. They can get used to the amount of sleep that they get. So it's really important as parents, as teachers, to encourage students to get as much sleep as they can. For preschoolers, it's, it's 10 to 13 hours. And um, we did actually did a study recently where we looked at preschool sleep patterns. And um, maybe not surprisingly, preschoolers are getting about 9.8 hours of sleep per night. They're falling short within the sample that we studied, even at the preschool age. So it's not just adults that are not getting enough sleep, it's even preschoolers, which is really kind of disheartening as a sleep researcher. Um, you know, most likely the reason for that is because there are a lot of demands upon parents to, um, you know, to work outside the home, to to spend time with their kids, and it's hard to get your child to bed early, especially if you're not putting dinner on the table till later. And then many parents have to get up early and wake their children up early in order to get them to school and for, for the parents to get to work. So I guess it's not too surprising that even preschoolers are short, falling short of recommendations, but it's, it's a little bit of a hard thing for me to swallow to think about even preschoolers aren't getting enough of it. Um, as adults, we should be in the seven to nine range. Um, 
And again, if you don't get that much sleep, what can happen is we have all kinds of issues in terms of cognitive impairments and um, health issues and all sorts of things. So sleep is really important for learning. And we know that when we look at adolescents especially, what we see is this incredible shift, which you might know about, which is that um, young children tend to get up early. They tend to be early risers. And adolescents, on the other hand, you notice uh, they start to become late risers. They start to want to sleep in more. They have a harder time waking up in the morning. This is a real shift, and we don't know the exact reason for it. We can't completely explain it yet. Um, but we do know that adolescents uh, are tending to shift in terms of the fact that they, they want to wake up later. The problem is school starts earlier for them. And so that's one of the things that, that I've been thinking about a lot in terms of active learning and how do we get students ready for success. Well, one way is to promote sleep. And by having earlier start times in school, we're not doing them any favors. Um, if we think about how do we make bigger gains, again, in active learning, promoting sleep is one way. We actually have sort of a real experiment that happens every year in the United States, which is time change. And it turns out that when we lose one hour of sleep in the spring, there are significantly more accidents that occur, literally car accidents that can occur. This is, this is a real-world experiment that's happening to all of us, and it raises our risk of, um, of number of accidents that can occur. And when we do our fall time change, which is coming up, we get that extra hour of sleep, and we actually see fewer accidents occurring at that time. So these have real implications. And so I've been really wanting to try to promote having later start times for middle schoolers, but I would like to get your feedback on this too, in terms of what are some of the downsides of having later start times in middle school? Um, because there are so many positive impacts of that that I want to show you in a second. I put this picture up here of these rats just to show you that there have been animal studies on sleep as well. And we know that if you sleep deprive a rat, um, after a week or so they start to develop uh, immune system issues, they start to become sick, they start to develop lesions on their body of complete sleep de deprivation. After three or four weeks of complete sleep deprivation, the rats actually will end up dying. And so sleep is literally important for survival. And it's one of those things that I think we should all be promoting. This is a quote from the uh, American Academy of Sleep Medicine, just, just published this year. And they say, during adolescence, internal circadian rhythms and biological sleep drive change to result in later sleep and wake times. This has been documented over and over again. And again, the cause of it is a little bit unknown. It could be hormonal changes, uh, or it could be societal changes in terms of more homework, or maybe more artificial light at night, we're not really sure. But as a result of these changes, early middle school and high school start times curtail sleep, hamper a student's preparedness to learn, negatively impact physical and mental health, and impair driving safety. Furthermore, a growing body of evidence shows that delaying school start times positively impacts student achievement, health, and safety. So I think it's important to consider this, and I think we may see school start times happening later as more research comes out about this. Um, here's one of those studies that was recently published that they did in Seattle. And it was a real research study where they, they looked at um, sleepiness and um, kind of sleep-wake patterns before and after 
um, they changed the school start times one hour later. And what they found was interesting. So a couple things you might think about, which is that if you started school start times an hour later, there's always been this kind of criticism that, okay, if you start school time one hour later, then they're probably just gonna go to bed one hour later. So what's the difference gonna be? But they found that there's no significant difference in terms of when these high school students went to sleep, but that when they delayed the school start time, they got about 45 minutes to an hour extra sleep per night. And you might think, well, 45 minutes to an hour, is that really that much? It really is. It can really boost them up into the recommended amount of sleep that is necessary um, for promoting um, good health. And so they found some other things like grades improved after the one hour delay <coughs> in start time. They found that they were less sleepy, as you might imagine, because they got more sleep. And then in schools that were more economically disadvantaged, they found fewer absences each year and the number of tardies uh, significantly reduced. But they didn't find that effect in a school that um, was not economically disadvantaged. And so um, there's a lot of evidence that we can kind of promote sleep. If we promote sleep, then that will have some really significant positive implications. Okay, let's try a little demonstration to show you that um, meaningful information, by pro providing meaning, it will help you sort of learn things better. So if you just put your hands out on the table, uh, and if you see a word that's in all caps, tap your left hand. If you see a word that's in all lowercase, tap your right hand. You're going to see a list of words from top to bottom. Just kind of go through that list, start at the top. If it's in caps, tap your left. If it's lowercase, tap your right. Okay, so what word is it? Fox. It's hard to remember words based upon that sort of superficial context of capitals versus lowercase, but now let's try the same thing. If the word is a living thing, tap your left hand. If it's a non-living thing, tap your right hand. Okay, so living is left. First of all, you notice that it took a little bit longer because you had to think about that information, but now can you remember any of the words that were on the screen? Camel, human, building. Yeah, so you're coming up with more words, right? Yeah, because you're providing some form of meaning to those words, and as if we do that as instructors, try to make connections to meaningful information, long-term memory is more likely to be evoked. So why do, why do we need active learning? I, I, Trying to make an argument that really active learning will have an impact on Christian values, including sort of becoming, belonging, and believing, in that, especially if we're doing active learning, specifically outreach, that the service that these students are going to be doing by going outside of the classroom and teaching other students about something that they're passionate about will develop really important life skills and they'll feel like they are doing something really meaningful, which can lead to them feeling like they belong, developing relationships with others, feeling a sense of identity. Um, and in doing so, they feel like they are someone, a child of God, who can learn, be a part of a community, to have some grace when they may not do things the right way. 
Outreach is one way in which we can tap into some important Christian values that I think are really um, important to develop in, in these students. And so I think many of the virtues um, that we think about, like compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance, forgiveness, love, all of these things we can actually tap into just simply by doing outreach, by helping others and providing service. So let me remind you of the problems, and we'll kind of talk a little bit more about outreach specifically, and how outreach has been sort of instrumental for both those that do the outreach and those that receive it. So again, outreach here in this context means we just want to get out in the field and teach students something new. Specifically, we want to target those that are underrepresented and underserved in STEM fields traditionally. Um, and to just do active learning with these, with these kids. And so we've done this with undergraduates. As I mentioned, you could do this really with really any age group that you wanted to kind of allow students to develop their own curriculum. Our students developed a curriculum about ways that they wanted to engage students, in this case middle school students, uh, in neuroscience related activities. That was really their passion, but you could apply this to any context, I think. And it's important, I think, to team with local schools, other schools, perhaps especially other schools that may be more economically disadvantaged. And so in order to do research, I'm sorry, outreach, in order to do outreach effectively, you have to have people, right? You have to have students that are willing to, to, to go out into the field and do this. They develop the lesson plans. That's the piece of this where they're developing a curriculum and testing it by, by teaching others something new. It does take a significant amount of time uh, to, to plan for these outreach activities, and if you're trying to reach a school outside of your own, then um, you have to sort of set those things up ahead of time. And it requires a bit of funding, but depending on what you want to do, it may not be all that costly. For us, we needed to buy things like um, uh, sheep brains, as we dissected sheep brains, and um, a few other tools that I'll show you in a minute. We perform outreach during Brain Awareness Week, which is generally in early March, and it's a whole week long of brain-related activities, and um, again, we're engaging our undergraduates in this process, but you could really either engage your own students in this uh, <coughs> process, or you could see if you can invite um, other scientists to come into your classroom and provide some of that outreach. Um, we're partnering with Western Michigan University School of Medicine where they're, um, they're having a course actually on active citizenship as medical students to learn how to engage in outreach activity. It, it's a volunteer-based program, it's something that medical student, students um, really need to learn how to do. And so I think at any level we could we can teach those to get engaged in outreach. So, what we've done over the past several years is in the first year, um, we've had volunteers, we have undergraduate volunteers to go into classrooms, <coughs> K through 12 classrooms specifically, and sort of implement their curriculum. And um, they uh, also really engage those students in various activities that I'll show you in a second. We've compared that to an open house where instead of going out into the schools 
we invite community members in to Hope College, we found some interesting differences in terms of the demographics in which we reach if we go to the classroom versus invite those in. Um, we also invite a speaker every year to come talk about um, neuroscience research and sort of we try to find a speaker who can relate to other community members and we invite community members in. And the first year we reached about 500 community members, but it's grown ever since. We've started to really um, evaluate our outreach by looking at learning gains in the students that we reach, trying to, to get more accessible topics with our keynote speakers. You can see the number of community members that we've reached over time has grown. And in the third year, we wanted to look at the demographics and the content re uh, retention. We wanted to know who are we reaching and, and are their attitudes changing? Because that's one thing that we think is really, really important. Um, this, this year we're expanding upon all of these initiatives to really evaluate socioeconomic status to see if that differs between the in-school and the open house event. We have some data to support that. Um, and we're also going to evaluate our community speaker event to see if there are ways in which we can uh, get even more community members to get excited about science. Um, so in the first year we didn't evaluate anything, we were just trying this out, right? <laughs> And we realized very quickly that in order for us to improve, we need to do some form of assessment. And so in our second year, what we did was we assessed how much did the students that we reached, how much did they actually learn? And we did this in a pretty simple way. We just asked the students to complete a 10-item pretest that was related to our concept, to our lesson, and then we asked them to complete that post-test about a week later to see if there were any gains. We also looked to see if there were any effects upon the students that performed the outreach to see if it impacted them in any meaningful way. In the third year, we looked at demographic data. We also looked to see if attitudes towards science and the students were improved. And we continued to look to see if we saw knowledge gains in the students. Um, again, this year we're going to look at a number of other things, including evaluating the, the speaker event the effect on the medical students to see if outreach had a, a meaningful effect upon them. And we're also going to look to see if multiple visits to the same classroom can be impactful in a longitudinal way versus the single visit outreach, which is what we do now. So here's some of the things that we do. So here's a sheet brain. Um, students will um, sort of design a lesson plan where they bring sheet brains in and they really want middle schoolers and high schoolers to get their hands on these sheet brains with gloves, of course, and to identify different parts of the brain as an active learning process. Um, we have blind boxes where uh, middle schoolers, uh, elementary age students, even high schoolers will reach in there and try to guess what's in there by using their sense of touch alone. And then we allow them to smell it and we allow them to use other modalities to try to figure out what's in the box. There's a reaction time test to see if they're faster at um, sort of catching this ruler based upon visual cues or visual and auditory cues together. We have um, sort of this demonstration of um, uh, altered vision where they wear goggles and it, it messes up their vision a little bit. It alters it by about 30 degrees and we show them how they're not able to throw the ball in a straight line initially, but their brain will start to um, sort of adapt to that. And then we have a situation where they learn about their senses and specifically there's some really cool tools out there that can 
temporarily change your, um, your taste. There's a tea out there that um, can block your sweet receptors on your tongue so that sweet things no longer taste sweet. M&Ms taste like nothing. Um, or there are things, these things called miracle berries. That's what's being shown there. Miracle berries, you can buy these on Amazon. And, and actually what they do is they make sour things taste sweet. They block the sour receptor. And so when you bite into like a, a lime or a lemon after using these miracle berries, it tastes really sweet and amazing, actually. And it's sort of a revelation for, um, for students to be able to do these activities and learn more about their nervous system by doing these activities. And it's, it's actually really, really a fun thing. But again, you could really apply this to any kind of situation by designing some form of activities that you can take into another classroom. And I think there's no better way to learn something than to, to teach it to others. So this is one way that you can, you can do something like that. So here's some questions that we had. The first one was, based upon this hour-long outreach effort into the classrooms, do students learn? Do the middle schoolers that we reach actually learn? Well, we had a 10-question pre-post kind of test. And you can see many of the questions we do see a significant gain in terms of how many students got those questions right. But you notice that some of them we don't. Questions 2, 4, 8, and 10 are actually questions that we're, um, we're testing more a passive form of learning. Um, because when we came into the classroom, we tried to teach them a few things in a lecture kind of a way. And then we did activities. And it turns out that the things that we tried to teach them in the lecture format were ineffective. And so the things that they actually did, the activities they engaged in, are the, the areas where we saw the biggest improvements. Um, another kind of cool thing is that this outreach that we did, because we assessed it and evaluated it, we published it in a, in a journal called the Journal of Undergraduate Neuroscience Education, where now um, you can access this and look at the activities that we did and, and try them out on your own. So it's kind of cool that um, some of the things that you develop are things that you can publish so that others can use those kinds of things as well. Um, what's the impact on the teachers? That is, our undergraduate students that actually went out into the schools and did this work. Well, we saw, as you can see, um, the outreach experience significantly helped them explain concepts to non-scientists, something that undergrads may not get a lot of experience doing. And so when they went out into these schools, they had to make sure that they excited others about science and to explain concepts well to them. It also significantly increased the, um, the teacher's interest in communicating with non-scientists, made them think more about ways in which they can engage with the community members and improve their commu communication skills. And so outreach is a way in which we can build on important skills that we want our students to know. Um, where do we reach a more diverse audience? I mentioned that we had both an open house where we invited the community in, and we had in-school visits where we went out into the schools. Well, it turns out we reach a much more diverse population if we go to the schools than when we invite individuals from the community into us. And so that really means that we have to, we have to take this seriously. And, and really, if we want to reach those that are underserved, 
we need to get out to where they are and not expect them to necessarily come to us. There's another interesting thing that happens with the open house, which is that we reach people that are already interested in science, and that's not necessarily the group that we want to reach. So that's, that's a really important thing, um, which is what we found out of this, this research uh, on outreach, which is that if you look at attitudes towards science, there's actually a survey out there that assesses attitudes towards science, and we used that survey to see what were their initial attitudes when, uh, before we even came into the school. It turns out that attitudes towards science are significantly higher in participants that come to an open house versus those that are in the schools. Again, probably because those that are coming to the open house are already interested in science, right? Those are not the ones we necessarily really want to reach. We want to reach the ones that are a little bit more skeptical and not sure about science than the ones that are already loving. Um, and we don't see a sex difference here. Um, so both males and females, we see that attitudes towards science are higher in the open house than the in-school visits. Um, and it turns out that if we look at the pre-post attitudes towards science, we see a significant, small but significant increase in the participants that we reached in the schools. So our outreach event slightly nudged them in the direction we want them to go in. That is significant improvement in attitudes towards science. We don't see that as a significant effect in the open house, probably because we're already at a ceiling effect. Um, and so this is really what we want to see. These scores over here are showing that there are still knowledge gains that are happening. And we kind of change things up rather than having a multiple choice kind of a test. We, we gave them more of an essay kind of question and we scored them based upon certain criteria and found that with that kind of a question we still see um, significant learning gains in those, those students based upon our one-time visit. So what we want to do in the future is to continue to develop this program by um, involving other schools, by involving um, more local schools, but also exciting other people about outreach. Um, to continue to, to develop lesson plans, to teach new things to students about neuroscience, and to think about ways in which a longitudinal set of lessons might be used, even by middle school teachers, in order to teach this content. And also to hopefully, our hope is to um, encourage teachers to allow their students to get excited about a topic and perform outreach in their own community. Um, we're evaluating effects of outreach on med students. We're also um, looking at the effectiveness of our speaker to the community members. We really just want to encourage um, science to be more accessible, and we hope that outreach is one way to do that. Uh, here's some pictures of, of what we've done, and we've been kind of fortunate that we, we have a human brain specimen, believe it or not, that students you know, can actually get their hands on with gloves, uh, and they can actually see what a brain looks like and feels like. Um, here's the reaction time test up here. Uh, this is sort of a sheet brain kind of thing where they're dissecting it and looking at the different parts of the brain, and, and our volunteers, our undergraduate student volunteers, are teaching them about specific things that they really want these students to learn about. There's arts and crafts that they do. They paint a brain, but we try to tie learning in by 
explaining that different lobes of the brain have different functions and ask them to paint those different lobes as they learn about that. Um, we also have some really fun equipment from Backyard Brains is what it's called. Backyard Brains is a company that develops outreach kinds of activities. They're already pre-made. You purchase them in a box and you can do things like, um, I'm trying to remember what this one is, but you can actually um, hook up electrodes to your arm and kind of squeeze your hand and that will move a claw because the, the, the actual neurons that are firing are actually picked up, that electrical activity is picked up and transferred to this claw and we explain the role of the neurons and how they emit electrical energy and they, there's a whole slew of cool things that you can do with their equipment um, so that students learn new things <coughs> about neuroscience and this is really one of the most fun days we have I think um, where this is the open house event, right? This is where we invite community members in. And I think one of the challenges really is figuring out how to advertise for this event. How do we get more people excited about it? Because when they come, they're excited about it. We just want to reach even more people. Um, and so uh, I should acknowledge uh, some of those that have helped tremendously in this work. Uh, a couple of my colleagues, colleagues at Hope College, Erin Welsh and Susan Ingrid Brown, who have been instrumental in, in the logistics portion of this, and Peter Volbrecht, who's at Western Michigan Medical School and is involving medical students in this process. Um, so I, I welcome your input. I appreciate you listening. Um, and I'm really mostly curious about, about what you think about outreach, whether or not it's something that's feasible. Um, in the classroom, or if it's something that might be more well-suited to invite speakers in. But I, I'm passionate about outreach, and I'm passionate about you know, learning and ways in which we can improve learning by promoting things like sleep and memory and making meaningful connections. And those kinds of things are really important to me. So I welcome your input at this point, if you have insight about any of this or, or ways in which we might be able to promote outreach in, in meaningful ways. 